I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is our podcast, Sound Strategic, designed to showcase the talents of our scholars and analysts here at the IISS, and I am delighted that today we are showcasing uh, Douglas Berry, who is the Senior Fellow for Military Aerospace here at the IISS. He has been the Deputy News Editor at Jane's Defense Weekly, the London Bureau Chief of Aviation Week, the European Editor of Defense News, as that should make obvious to everybody listening to this, he is a journalist. And one of the interesting things for me uh, that I learned coming to work at the IISS is that many of our very best, most incisive analysts don't come out of academic work or out of government analysis. They come out of being journalists. Um, and we are subject today is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, U.S. withdrawal from it, Russian violations of it, which is not only an area of Doug's expertise, but he wrote a terrific blog post on it at the Military Balance blog here at the IISS, assessing the Russian, the allegations of Russian INF violation. So, uh, and he works in our defense and military analysis team. Thank you, Doug, for giving me your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Corey, for a very kind introduction. <laughs> so, uh, we have a common set of questions that we uh, talk about each time we do this. The opening one is that for some people who have more obscure corners of the essential research we do, uh, I challenge them to come up with something newsworthy in their work. Obviously, in yours, it's going to be how should we understand the American withdrawal, what's going on with the Russian violation, talk us through what the treaty does, what the violation allegations are, and what it means that the U.S. has signaled its withdrawal. And the INF is, is in many ways a kind of, it's an extraordinarily important treaty. Uh, it, you could see it as a high watermark, if you like, of, of arms control, signed in 1987, uh, comes into effect in, in 1988. The current problem, the crisis in the treaty, which unfortunately looks like it will bring the treaty to an end probably in August unless there is a huge change both in Washington and, and in Moscow is around the allegations that the US and its NATO allies now have over uh, Russian abrogation of a key element of the treaty which is the deployment of a cruise missile which breaches the, the range threshold. Uh, so let me interrupt you for a second. I think it wildly unlikely that any of our listeners aren't real nerds like us. But just in case uh, we have casual listeners, uh, the INF Treaty prohibits deployment of missiles uh, in the 500-kilometer to 5,000-kilometer range. 500-kilometer to 5,500-kilometer ballistic or cruise, irrespective of, of, of warhead type. 
so it covered off both. So both conventional and nuclear. And nuclear. Um, very important. It took out a whole class of weapons. Uh, really, the only time you've seen that done in in, in, in terms of strategic arms uh, limitations. The challenge now is how to manage what happens next. If 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 I can say that, the difficulty you have is partly the Russians flatly deny the breach. Uh, and the Americans remain absolutely adamant that the Russians are in breach and, and, and not marginally. We're not talking a, about a missile which does, you know, 50 kilometres more than 500. It, it's a missile, a cruise missile, which the, the intelligence community, from what we've seen in open source, believes it probably does up to 2,000 kilometres. So it sits right in the middle of where the treaty wants to stop uh, these kinds of systems. You know, 2,000 kilometre range weapon is a very capable weapon. In the European context in particular, it's a really unpleasant kind of weapon to have out there. The Russians turn around and say, no, this is, ju- this is just incorrect. Our own view, certainly the view within DMAP or general assessment, is that on the balance of probability, um, because there is no smoking gun, we have seen no smoking gun evidence from the US, but there is a lot of circumstantial material which would seem to suggest that the Russians are indeed in breach? Uh, So two questions. The first is, um, when did the INF inspections regime stop? Because shouldn't there be a way for, if the treaty is going to stay in force, shouldn't there be some mechanism by which you can investigate the allegation and prove it right or wrong? The difficulty is in verification in this one. The verification mechanisms in INF, are, when it comes to this area, when you really want to know uh, the range of a, of a system, it's very, very difficult to verify it. One of the problems that seems to surround the, the, the weapon in question, which the, has, has the, the designation SSC, surface-to-surface cruise number 8, SSC-8, uh, is that it's very similar to a missile called the SSC-7, surprisingly enough. Um, (laughs) Both of which are probably based on the same submarine and surface-launched naval cruise missile which the the Russians have used in Syria. There are two versions of that, one of which is actually compliant uh, in range terms with with INF, although it doesn't fall under INF because it's a naval system, so it isn't covered. Um, The longer-range one, the one which is in service with, with Russia on the naval side, is a 1,500 to 2,000 kilometre range weapon. The problem in verification terms is that that system was originally tested on the ground at a Russian test range called Kapustinyar. You could very easily test that missile from a transport director launcher, a, a kind of the ground vehicle that you normally carry these things around in, and you would struggle to be able to tell what the what the range was. In fact, you could actually test it at under... I mean, the, you could have deployed this system and never tested it to its full capability range because you're basing it on the naval cruise missile system. You know it goes 2,000 right. kilometres, so you're happy with so that. So the INF Treaty does not restrict missiles in those ranges that are air-based or sea-based. It's only the land-based missiles. It's only land-based. So when we say the treaty eliminated an entire class of missiles... That's and that is generally said about the INF Treaty, that people are talking about 
it eliminated one basing type of a class of missiles. And so some of the challenge of verification is that there are missiles in these ranges, and the treaty does not prevent the development of them. It only prevents the deployment of them, right? It's the deployment, and if I remember the treaty detail correctly, and we may want to edit this out, um, it's the... Deployment, but it's also the testing of the system from a, a ground, from a, ground a mobile right. ground vehicle. You can test them right. from a static position, but mm-hmm. as soon as you put them onto something which is mobile, um, you're in, you're effectively in, mm-hmm. you, you're breaching the treaty. So my favorite thing about the IISS is that we are a data-driven organization. We're data producers, and it provides the basis of our analysis. And I have a question for our listeners, because we are doing the INF Treaty, because somebody, uh, several people asked that we pick up this topic. So first of all, to our listeners, thank you for caring enough that you proposed topics you wanted to hear from our expert analysts on. But second, I have a challenge for the listeners, which is, it came as a great shock to me that the term data troll isn't universally seen as a compliment, uh, because in my tribe, that's an incredibly splashy compliment. And so when I have tended to refer to the defense and military analysis team as data trolls crawling out from under their bridges to uh, educate the rest of us, um, I intend it as a compliment. Anybody who's got a better term that would be universally seen as a compliment, I would love to hear it. And listening to the degree of refinement of Doug's knowledge of the treaty reminds me why data troll is an accurate description as well. So you say there's no smoking gun that anybody's produced, that the U.S. has produced on this. And yet we this missile, this... Uh, cruise missile exists in the sea-based and is deployed in sea-based. And the U.S. also alleged that Russia has deployed three battalions of them, four battalions of them. Um, How are those um, facts not a smoking gun? And then the follow-up question is, how in the world did the United States convince 28 other NATO allies to sign up to the material breach statement without a smoking gun? I, th- I think the issue of smoking gun is really interesting. I think it, it, from a European perspective, this is particularly important because you, this has to be convincing in the court of public opinion. Yes, public has to believe, or the, the element of the public which is interested in this, has to believe that the US and NATO have got this right. Obviously, it's a, it's a big claim. Uh, there, there are a range of ramifications, um, which none of which are particularly good, uh, and some of which are particularly bad. Um, it, perhaps if I kind of talk you through why I think, or why DMAP thinks, or the collective view is that the US is, is right. There's a kind of, and it's arcane perhaps, but I think it's quite important. There is a kind of naming process in the the intelligence community for these things. So uh, I mentioned earlier on Kapustin Yar. Kapustin Yar is where you would expect 
the intelligence community probably first see this system. So you would expect it to have a KY number. That's normal. So this we haven't seen a KY number for this, although interestingly the nuclear power cruise missile looks like it's KY-30. So the treaty breach system is below KY-30, so it's probably in the KY-20s. We then see in open source in US publications the designation SSC-X8. The X meaning this is a developmental system not yet deployed. After that, again, and it looked like a very deliberate intelligence leak to the US media, we see SS8, SSC-8, excuse me, uh, and, and the, the code name emerges as well, Screwdriver. I don't think I can remember um, ever seeing that process completed through to a system which the naming convention indicates it's in service, and all of that actually been completely wrong. Very interesting. So that the, the, you so see, there's a bureaucratic process that that we have seen in several previous iterations, and that that lends credibility to the fact that the missile is. Um, surface-based. Absolutely. The, the, there are some systems which have never made it fully into service, so there are some designations out there where the X still exists. Those, some of those systems were at the end of the Cold War where the, the Soviet Union collapses and the Russians just run out of money to, to finish development. So those numbers are parked. But those ex- they existed. It was actual hardware. Uh, and, and I think when you look at this, you kind of think... All these things are indicative of this system existing. Uh, The Russians themselves um, have finally admitted that there is a system in this class. The 9M729 is the designation they use. It's also the designation that the US has suggested is the Russian designation for the treaty breach missile. The Russians have have now showed uh, what they claim to be the 9M729, which they say isn't a treaty breach missile. Mm -hmm. It's within the range. And what about the Russian counterclaim that American missiles deployed in Europe as ballistic missile defense systems are violations of the treaty because they can likewise serve in this role? I think it's interesting to look at the the, the kinds of allegations that the Russians have made, and they've not just been limited to... um, BMD sites, they've kind of pointed towards some uninhabited air vehicles as potentially non-compliant if you look at them in a specific way, and indeed some of the um, ballistic missile targets that the US has used, you can actually say, well actually they're not strictly compliant with INF. The Russian allegations have tended to be detailed and one issues of interpretation Mm-hmm. Rather than really a you know a coaching horses through the centre of the treaty, I think the most significant one is, is is the allegation around well you could you know rather than have a ballistic missile defence interceptor you can stick a Tomahawk cruise missile in these launchers. Can you? you technically yes? You would have to tweak the software a bit. You would actually see it being done if you were paying any attention, and I'm sure that the Russians are paying an awful lot of attention to those sites. And also the the the, the main advantage of, of a Glickum. And actually, one of the concerns that the U.S. Which is a ground launch cruise missile. Excuse the acronym. Um, a ground launch cruise missile is that it's it's land mobile. You can drive it around. You can. 
it was one of the concerns that the US had in the run-up the run to the 1987 INF was how you would spot these things anyway. It was a real difficulty. Yeah. So the idea that you really, the, the best you could hope for, the, 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 the idea that it's a significant threat that you've stuck some tomahawks in basically concrete silos, the Russians know exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. To me, again, the, the, the military rationale for doing that seems considerably less strong than, than having a road mobile system that you can drive around, you can hide, you can move every 12, 24 hours, and it would be Which very difficult. Which is what difficult. the battalions of the Russian SSC-8 are, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely mobile. Yeah. Um, the, there is a further challenge in the sense that the... SSC-8 and the SSC-7 vehicles are very, very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. Hmm. So what is also unclear at the moment is how the Russians, assuming they have the system, are actually deploying it. Are they mixing these systems up? Do you have a unit which is both the short-range missile and the long-range missile? Ah. Very difficult to identify. Or are they restricting it to only long-range missiles only in some units? And I think that, that, that to me is an open question. Mm-hmm. how the Russians are going to... So it seems to me that one of the major advantages of arms control treaties like the INF is that it creates predictability. It, uh, you know, if long-range missiles are prohibited, you can verify whether there are units with which it is longer-range missiles are deployed. So it lifts some of the fog of war that could lead to miscalculations in crises and is therefore strategically stabilizing in the relationship. And that's one of the things that is evaporating as the INF Treaty goes away. The challenge, and I have been surprised at the number of arms control advocates who, like me, cannot answer the question of how can we bring Russia back into compliance with the treaty? Because um, it wasn't just the Trump administration who considers them in violation. The Obama administration did as well. We got 29 NATO states to agree that this is a material breach of the treaty, a coach and horses driving through the middle, as you termed it, rather than a technicality around the margins. So the Trump administration is not particularly good at working with allies and getting large-scale multilateral consensus, and they did it on this, which suggests to me uh, it, too, gives credence to the claim, right? And for those folks who are thinking about whether alliances are in America's interests, I would suggest to you that having allies who validate things that you think are important actually really matters in the uh, in America's ability to achieve what it wants in the world. And I think we see that with, <clears throat> excuse me, the NATO support for material breach. What are the likely consequences? Because I don't, for four years, almost five, American administrations have been turning keys in the lock, trying to get the Russians back into compliance. And it didn't work to name and shame. It didn't work to have the nuclear posture review of the United States suggest that we would start deploying more sea-based 
nuclear cruise missiles if the Russians didn't come into compliance. Doug, do you see any key that can be turned in the, the lock that the Russians might come back into compliance with the treaty? I'd like to say yes, but actually I find it very difficult to identify the way that, that, that the US and its NATO allies can get the Russians to, to initially to fess up, first mm-hmm. of all, that they are, they are in breach. And perhaps the mechanics of this will be that the, the, the current INF treaty is going to have to come apart at the seams. It will, it will collapse. But hopefully you then set up a situation where, where the Russians realise that it is actually in their interest to come back to the table and somehow either renegotiate, go back and look at the terms of INF and restart the treaty, because I think the clock is ticking there. It's, it's going to be very difficult to see this situation being resolved uh, in, in a way that everybody's comfortable with before, before mm-hmm. the, the six-month period runs out. Now, that clock is now ticking. So I want to switch our geographic focus to the Asia-Pacific, or the Indo-Pacific, as the U.S. calls it these days, uh, because the Pacific commanders, the American military commanders in the Indo-Pacific, have been agitating for the ability to deploy conventional missiles uh, and have considered China's deployments uh, a major threat to our ability to defend our allies in the Indo-Pacific. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, give us a preview of the uh, 2019 military balances judgment on what of China's missiles are likely to be, if you could get a treaty with the Chinese on this, would it constrain anything useful for China? I think if you look at it the other way around, if you look at it from Beijing's perspective, you can think, well, why would the Chinese want to see an INF-like treaty uh, come into being? Because actually, if you look at their missile arsenal, some 90% of it, give or take, falls into the INF category. So they would lose most of what they consider to be both conven- you know, conventional regional weapons and some weapons that they would consider to be strategic, not against the US, but against some other nations who are major players in the Indo-Pacific. So for me, it's difficult to see why the Chinese would want to go down that particular path. On the other hand, when you look at some of the US arguments, I have a slight difficulty in, and this may sound strange coming from an air power proponent, but when I look at this, I think, actually, I would be papering the house with submarine launch cruise missiles uh, and using the marine environment, the maritime environment, because that's where the US has got leverage. Putting stuff in Guam, for instance, to me seems a, a curious solution in that Guam hasn't got a huge landmass. Right, the survivability China, of sea-based systems being so much greater. Yeah, yeah. so I, you know, vertical launch cells and a whole pile of submarines and... and Arleigh Burke-class cruisers and destroyers, that that to me seems the easiest way to go. Possibly the most logical, to support it with air systems as well. Do you really want to go down the land systems path in this area? It strikes me as not necessarily the way to go. Last INF question, which is, what do you think the consequences of the collapse of the treaty will be? My guess is you will see... Uh, lots of conventional missile deployments, land-based conventional missile deployments by the U.S. and the Pacific, and no change in Europe because the political consequences for the United States of trying to 
push allies to joint deployments are high in every place except possibly Poland or the Baltic states. But for survivability reasons, you wouldn't want to put long-range missiles on land in, in frontline states. What do you think is likely to happen, Doug? I think the optimist, the optimist in me hopes that you know, the, the collapse of the treaty will be kind of constrained, if you like, that the, the, the ripple effects won't be, won't be huge. They're certainly in the short term going to make relations between Moscow, Europe uh, uh, and the US more challenging. I th- a worry for me is if the treaty does collapse uh, and the Russians then decide, although Putin has said he's not going to do this, and I think we can very quickly touch on some of Putin's comments, and I think they're, 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 they're illuminating. There is a if the US does develop a, a ground launch cruise missile, which it seems to be doing, or at least it said within the NPR, NPR that, that the nuclear posture review this was this was one option that was 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 being considered and uh, and explored. The difficulty when you develop defence technology is that there is then the kind of there's an impetus to to use it and to deploy it, mm-hmm. and. Moscow is liable to turn around and say, well, the US is developing this system. Um, we don't necessarily believe that they're not going to deploy it in Europe. How are we to know? How do we verify this? And it gives Putin yet another excuse to push for further developments in, of his system. I mentioned Putin simply because his comments when the US pulled out, when he, when he did a very stage-managed event, really, uh, and he said, well... If it all falls apart, I want my side to be ready to deploy uh, a ground launch version of Caliber, the Caliber cruise missile, which is the is the naval cruise missile at the heart of all of the concerns in many ways because it's yeah. the same system. I want a version of that to be ready to be landed, de- deployed by 2020, which does make you think that perhaps a version of that system already exists yes. and that what we will see is not the development but the public unveiling. You know, the for everybody who thinks Putin is a brilliant grand strategist, I have to say that reaction and this suggestion that you would that he would push cruise missile deployments forward is about the only thing that would unify NATO allies around a NATO response to it. And so I I just, I think we are giving him credit for being brilliant when, in fact, his strategy is alarming NATO allies into closer association with American positions. I'll give you the last word on that, and then we are going to gallop through the other questions. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I think Putin is a grand strategist. I think the jury is out. What I think he is is an extraordinary opportunist. Yes. He gets his foot in the door, and if nobody pushes back, he will just keep pushing. And I think this is where we are with INF, unfortunately. Exactly right. What in, I, in our IISS publications, we talk about as tolerance warfare. Yeah. Um, right? Like, or what in the Eisenhower administration, they used to call salami tactics. 
The Chinese are doing it, the Russians are doing it, and this is a big part of the corrosion of the liberal international order that we in the West are struggling to find effective counters to that. Okay, I want to ask a lightning round in our last five minutes of a couple of other questions. How'd you get interested in this work? Uh, my parents were wartime service Royal Air Force. Uh, ah, ha, ha. I, I was, fabulous. I've always been fascinated by things that, that flew. Um, I did think about a, a, a military service when I, was, when I was a kid. I wanted to fly. Um, but I got really bad hay fever, which would basically scratch me uh, as a crew in a medical. So uh, instead, I went off in the huff and studied English at university. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, I love both that um, your respect for your parents' service drew you into expertise in the field. And second, uh, even more wonderfully, that when... When fortune didn't give you a straight path to do what you wanted, you found another path to do what you wanted. I love that kind of resilience because I think most people's paths aren't nearly as straight as we assume for them. What's your favorite book in your field? I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to offer up three uh, different authors, I think, uh, uh, one of which is a multi-volume book. Um, close friend uh, and a journalist I've admired all the way through his career is a guy called Piotr Petoski, who's a Pole who uh, over the past three years has put out a, a three-volume um, collection on uh, Russian air power, which I just think is it, it, it's my <laughs> go-to source when I need some, 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 you know, when I need some sort of a confidence builder that I've got this right, I will look at Piotr. Uh, 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 and his books are, are, are fantastic. They're really, really valuable. Fabulous and very nerdy. What's the second? The second one, well, again, it... it it's uh, one is a monograph and one is a book, uh, both by by Colin Gray. Um, uh, monograph, great is, strategist, is is bonfire of the fallacies, and perhaps we can come back and touch on why I like that so much in a minute. Uh, and the second one is a book called uh, Another Bloody Century: Future Warfare, which came out I think in two thousand and five. Uh, it's particularly significant at that time because what Gray's argument is. Um, okay, we're all focused on uh, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. State-on-state warfare hasn't gone away. You know, it's still here, and we right. still need to think about it. And if we get this wrong, uh, we will develop armed forces which are fine for today's fight, but which are perilously badly equipped for the kind of threats we might face tomorrow. I think in 2005, that was a really brave thing to say because everybody really was looking at yeah. counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. And Gray stood up and said, well, actually, don't forget that state-in-state warfare is still there and is a driver of capability, and that's something and we need to take And if we optimise our forces to the low-end challenge where we're not fighting competitors, we're not fighting our economic and technological um, peers then that invites an adversary to optimize to the part of the conflict spectrum that they think they could win a war against us. I agree. It was both a brave and a smart thing to say, especially at that time. And the third one is a book by um, a guy called Shane, Shane M. Rizza, um, Killing Without Heart. And it's a, it's the subject itself isn't, isn't particularly new in that he's looking at... Um, uninhabited systems, automation, autonomy. Uh-huh. What is interesting, particularly interesting for me, he is um, he's a USAF guy. He was a, I think he was an F-15, certainly an F-15 pilot, I think an F-15 squadron leader. So he brings 
a, a military operator eye to this uh, and looks at it from the, uh, it, it really tries to figure out what are the kind of, not just the legal implications, but the moral and ethical implications from the perspective, if you like, the warfighter. Uh, what, what does this uh, mean uh, if you start to really take the humanity out of killing, which might sound like, in some ways sounds a bit perverse, but it, it's that commitment of blood and treasure, which he argues is, is central to, to war. If you end up in a situation where we can kill with impunity, it's something other than war. And I think that, that, that as we move increasingly into automated systems uh, and ultimately uh, into autonomous systems, these are things that we will have to be very, very careful of. Yeah. I think that's really important, and it also creates the possibility for asymmetric societal reactions to it. That is, those of us who live in free liberal societies are likely to want to place constraints, ethical constraints, because of who we are as political cultures. And societies that don't have um, the tethering in their leadership of broad public acceptance or where people aren't free enough to give that input. I think we in the West uh, may run a risk that we restrain ourselves in a way our adversaries don't restrain themselves. And that's not an argument for not restraining ourselves. It is we have to think creatively about the nature of that challenge and what we're going to do about it. Yeah, um, I have been laughing up my sleeve that when asked for one book, you gave us six. The three volumes, the monograph, the book, and the other book. And that is exactly what I love about the trolls who live under a bridge in DMAP. Until somebody gives me a better name. Okay, what's the conventional wisdom in your field that's wrong, Doug? I'll go back to the, 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 the Colin S. Gray monograph, The Bonfire of the Fallacies, because I think that's, it's a fantastically rich set of targets which he, which he sets up. And the one I'd pick out is the kind of conflation of air power and strategic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it still kind of infuses a lot of thinking around air power. Um, partly understandably, it's the it's the it's the junior of the domains, so it's got kind of sharp elbows. It's right. the kind of, you've got to remember, you know, it's me too, me too. Um, they want to make their case uh, and they overstate it sometimes. Yeah. So air power is capable of delivering. So maybe as cyber matures as a domain of operations, uh, air power enthusiasts will feel less inclined that they need to wear the ermine robe of strategic and can instead just be a useful contribution to the war effort. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And you you kind of... it would be nice if another of the domains could could be the new kid in the block now, <laughs> and air power could step back a bit and just recognise its own its self worth for what it is, which isn't. It's never actually. I will rephrase that. It, it's unlikely ever to be able to deliver a strategic outcome on its own. It will in concert, and it's an extraordinarily important element of of, of military capability. But it just needs to step back a little bit occasionally and recognize that the other domains have considerable value also. <laughs> we have a, a trove of Air Force pilots in the Shockey tribe. And so I thank you especially for arming me with that argument 
to push back on all of the pilots in the Shaki tribe. Uh, best work you've ever done? I don't know the best work. I think it's kind of... I, I think The one you like best or are proudest I think the one. I think the one that I've... A couple of things I've found particularly satisfying. Bonus point for precision and terminology on your part. The DMAP uh, was, for the past, I suppose, 36 months, has been involved in... Um, working, uh, contributing to what eventually was um, unveiled at Farnborough, the Farnborough Air Show last year, the, the, the combat air strategy. And I think it kind of, for me it was satisfying because it, we actually had influence. We fed into uh, a, a government process and, and, and we actually were credited on the, on the back of the document. So for me that was a kind of Congratulations. A very, very satisfying thing. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Last question, what's your favourite data visualisation? Oh, I think this year is about this year, any year. I think uh, Henry Boyd's uh, masterwork, which is the the, the 2019 uh, military balance wall chart on China, I think is extraordinary. I think it's fantastic. Fabulous. We will post a link to it on the website with this audio. Douglas Berry, thank you so much for this education on the INF Treaty and how you think about the work that you do. Thank you, Corrie.